Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Caro inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and we are in the middle of International Month, Wimbledon, the British, the Open Championship, the Scottish Open. I'm over here in Scotland and St. Andrews talking about all of these issues from a very significant perspective, and therefore, the deal-making issues, three to one. Three. 2022, back in America, the best and worst cities for recreation. WalletHub makes a study of the 100 largest U.S. cities across 47 key indicators of recreation friendliness for each city. They examine the accessibility of entertainment, recreational facilities, quality of parks, and the weather. Top five cities, Vegas, Orlando, Cincinnati, Tampa, Scottsdale. Five worse, Irving, Newark, Jersey City, Chula Vista, and Fort Wayne. San Francisco had the most bike rental facilities for square foot of the population, and on and on. Two. USC and UCLA are all set to join the Big Ten, as now the Pac-12 scrambles to figure out what to do next. The upcoming move comes as the Pac-12 media rights deal, set to expire in 2024. While the Big Ten is negotiating a new media rights deal that could exceed a billion annually, and as for the Pac-12, the shifts puts the league and its commissioner, Joe, George Klyavov, in a precarious position. Thursday marked his one-year anniversary on the job, and both will stand at 16 teams, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, after USC and UCLA moved to the Big Ten as Texas, Oklahoma enter the SEC. Actually, the SEC also big, and the bottom line is what to do next. One. Deal-making issue number one is a very significant one regarding NIL. Female college athletes are early winners in the first year. Officially been one year since the name, image, likeness rules became uh, the norm in college sports. And so far, female athletes have been the early winners. The tech platform Open Doors works with more than 80 Division I schools. Estimated the first year of NAL reached about $917 million, with the potential to reach $1.14 billion next year, front office sports reported. According to Open Doors, football remains king. The sports accounted for 49.9% of the total NIL compensation through May 31, followed by men's basketball at 17% and women's basketball at 15.7%. For a brief stint, their early data showed that women's basketball raked in more deals than men's. But when you take football out of the NIL equation, women's sports athletes make up about 53% of total NIL activities, roughly 5.6% more than men in the remaining sports. And that deal-making issue number one. Somebody who is very familiar with all of these issues in his prior life and now in his current life, Mike Wan, the former head of commissioner of the LPGA, now the CEO of the uh, USGA over here in Scotland after the Scottish Open, heading for the Open Championship. 
Nobody better to talk about all of these issues than Mike. He was the LPGA commissioner beginning in 2010, 34 attorneys uh, compared to 24 when he began, about $77 million in prize money, 50% increase in LPGA a teaching division, and 90,000 LPGA girls golfing, over 500 sites. He took the acumen to the PGA uh, men's uh, senior, uh, girls, all of the issues under the USGA, a very successful U.S. Open at, at, uh, at Brookline, and much more. And as we focus on the Open, LIV, a whole host of issues here at St. Andrews, appropriate to talk about these issues with Mike Wan. When you were on the maintenance crew at Naperville Country Club at age 13, did you ever think that you would end up in this lofty career position you find yourself in now? First off, uh, mister, you got to work on your research. Coldstream Country Club, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and on my business card, it said Bunker Boy, um, which was my role. Um, I was just trying to get out of the bunkers at age 13. You know, the idea of actually doing anything that actually paid well in golf uh, was crazy. I took that job because we finished at 2.30 and you could play for free after that. So you come home at 2.30, sleep for an hour and go play. And on Mondays, the grounds crews of Coldstream would play the other grounds crews of other Cincinnati country clubs. And my dad was so impressed by the different clubs I got to play on Mondays. Courses that probably still wouldn't have me as members. So, um, yeah, that... You don't have a lot of vision at 13, and you have a lot less vision at 13 when you're spending your day in a bunker. But then, of course you do, and you still have trouble getting out. We understand that. But you did go to Naperville Central High for a little while, and then Anderson High in Cincinnati. So geographically, I might not have the years correct, but I'm never going to admit a mistake. Uh, You're going to take advantage of that long term. But you've risen to lofty heights. Miami of Ohio, great sports business, sports program, 1987. Did you always set your sights on, I know sports has been your passion and would be your passion, but how do you choose to decide to parlay that into a sports career? It's not that easy, as we know. At the risk of uh, years of future abuse, I'm thinking you're going to give me after I tell you this. I went to school to be a sportscaster. In high school, I was the Cube Cable. This is when cable was just getting started. So luckily, you're old enough to understand this, but maybe a lot of your uh, your <laughs> listeners won't be. But um, Cube was just getting started. So cable TV was a new idea, and they didn't have a lot of things. So myself and Tom Brenneman, where the Cube Cable uh, basketball, High School Basketball Game of the Week broadcasters. And we went to Miami, Ohio to do the state championship. And after that, after we did the state championship, I went out um, with a buddy of mine and his older brother, who was a fraternity brother at Miami. And that's when I knew that's where I was going to school. I went to school to be a sportscaster, did that for about seven months, and then uh, transferred over to uh, economics and finance for all kinds of reasons. But even though I, I moved away from that as a major, I, I always had my sights at, at being in the sports business at some point. I probably wouldn't have guessed that to be golf. I was a I was a really bad walk-on quarterback uh, for a few weeks, literally for a few weeks. Uh, so I assumed it'd probably be in football or baseball, but um, it's strange how life works out, that being a bunker boy at 13 turns into being a USGA CEO at 57. Well, and, and also uh, you and Tom Brenneman, one is a Hall of Fame broadcaster and another one is a str- struggling golf administrator. You know, congratulations to you. So You don't 19- consider this podcast on par with Tom Brenneman and Fox Sports? <laughs> <laughs> slightly better and it's a big time show 1987 okay so Procter and Gamble brand assistant that's your way in that's your way up and you g- went through a diverse group of uh, of scope and products at, at P&G you know what's the one sustaining thing that you took away from your P&G experience 
Uh, I spent most of my time at P&G as the Crest Toothpaste brand manager. So in your next podcast, we'll break down tartar control and gum health because I'm your guy. Thank there. you. That's but, perfect. Um, I think that, you know, I, there's two things that I've used from P&G ever since, which is at Procter & Gamble, it doesn't matter how, how old you are or how, how high you've reached in the building. The person with the real consumer knowledge that knows what a, you know, what a consumer really wants, thinks and feels wins. And so um, understanding your customer is, um, is, the, is the ultimate thing. It's really the only thing. And I've used that almost the rest of my career. The other thing that I would say when I was at P&G is I took a couple of brands, including Crest Global. And going global is the greatest PowerPoint presentation and, the, yeah. and a miserable actual life experience. Because going global means relocating and being away from home and meetings you think went well that didn't go well at all. And uh, learning about you know other other cultures, and not understanding how you can how you can succeed the way you succeeded in a different country. And um, you know from there I went to Wilson, and from Wilson Taylor made Taylor made we went global. We got purchased by Adidas that was going global. Um, I clearly was involved in taking a business at, at Mission High Tech, a hockey business global. And then obviously the LPGA is by its very definition, maybe the most global uh, sport in the world. So, um, yeah, the, both of those things, understanding in my case, the fan or the golfer is really the most important thing. And um, and not being afraid of the process of going global that I always tell people going global is like going through a tunnel in the beginning. When it gets dark, every sense tells you to turn back to where the light was. Um, but you got to keep going, even when it gets really dark. And um, you know, I've been, I've been, a, uh, I've been few, I've been through a few going global propositions, and um, it's something that I consider kind of a strength. And it all, all stems from early days at PNG. Well, it's a strength, but it's also a diverse, uh, unique attribute uh, because going global in one field or one silo is one thing. But you've done it in hockey, you've done it in golf equipment, you've done it in toothpaste. Uh, and you've done it. You've done it in women's golf. So the LPGA, you take over in 2010. There are a lot of issues with the LPGA. Great commissioners, some commissioners that uh, did certain things well and not all things well. Net net, you had 24 tournaments when you started. You have 34 now. 76 million in prize money. 50 percent more in the LPGA teaching division. And here's the best stat I could come up with uh, as far as your career. 90,000 LPGA girl golfers at 500 sites. That culture change was huge. I could ask how you did it. All right. How'd you do it? <laughs> well, we just actually talked about a little bit about really knowing your customer. When I, um, when, I, when I got the job offer from the board at the LPGA, true story, Rick, I actually said, I'm not sure you have the right guy. I have no experience uh, running professional athletes. I haven't sold TV rights to a sport. I've never run a major sporting event. So, I mean, the, there's got to be somebody with more experience than me. And one of the board members said, um, what experience would you bring? Because we think you're the right guy, but we're curious what you think. And I said, listen, I have been a sponsor my whole life. P&G, Wilson, TaylorMade, Adidas. I've written checks to every sport in the world. I know what it feels like to write a $5 million check and then sit across from your own board trying to explain why cars going around in a circle and NASCAR is good for your brand or why sponsoring the Olympics or sponsoring the Yankees actually can move the needle for your customers and your consumers. So I know what it feels like to be that guy. And the board member who asked the question said, that's exactly why we want you to be commissioner. We have a lot of people in the building that know how to play professional golf, that know how to set up TV deals, that understand uh, tournament operations. We have nobody in the building that really understands what's it like to be a sponsor. What we're losing at the LPGA is the check rider. So, um, and in a strange way, that became sort of my my strength. When I got to the LPGA, the first thing I did is created something I call the customer profile card. It's a five by seven yep. card. On the top, it says who's writing the check this week. It says what are the three most important things they're hoping to get for their money? 
wanted us to think about a rate of return. They're trying to get rate of return. What do they hope Mike Wan says when there's a microphone in his face? What are the four places I have to be this week to make sure I'm showing them that their investment worked? And so I started making these sheets, Rick, for myself. And I always kept them in my back pocket. One day at a player meeting, somebody said, what's that card you always keep in your back pocket? So I pulled it out and I read it at a, at a player meeting. And we were at a championship site. And the players all said, you should give those to us. Like we should know. Because I also on the back of it, pictures of the most important people. I had their mailing address and their email address because I always would thank, I would send thank you cards and emails throughout the week. And uh, so jump forward 12 years. Every time a player comes to an LPGA event, she gets a customer profile card. She learns who's writing the check this week, what they want her to say when there's a microphone in her face, four places she has to be. Um, we show pictures to her of the most important people that'll be there, the ones that gave you this opportunity. And, uh, and they have to write one handwritten thank you card every week. It seems like a simple thing. Maybe it's a little old school, but we had one very big sponsor at the LPGA that also was a big sponsor of the NBA. And the CEO said to me, Mike, I've never received a thank you note from an NBA player, but I receive 150 from your players every year. Like, when are you going to stop? And I said, well, the fact you're not getting from the NBA is not my problem. It's their problem. And I said, out of curiosity, what do you do when you get 150 cards? And he's like, I cleared out a drawer in my, in my desk and I just put all of your cards in one of my drawers because I can't throw them away. And you and I both know if you own a drawer at every Fortune 500 CEO's desk, um, you're going to be in business a lot longer. So the real core of what I tried to bring to the LPGA is understanding what it means to be a check writer, because when check writers really feel like they're getting rate of return, they tell other check writers. And that's really what happened at the LPGA is through a little bit of success, it turned into a lot more success, really driven by players, athletes showing an appreciation level that most sponsors had never felt from other sports. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest stability strengths of the USGA, when you look at its current organization, Deloitte, Cisco, Lexus, Rolex, ProMedia, uh, ProMedica, uh, Amex, Century. I'm sure I missed some of the premier ones. You can recite them in your sleep. Uh, I, I, I assume your ability to relate to that part of the process is a very important part of your current work. Yeah, one of the things I really uh, appreciate and was drawn to the USGA over is um, unlike a lot of entities in sports and even a lot of entities in golf, the USGA, USGA believes in a small select audience that is even more closely aligned with us than just, you know, at the, at the LPGA, we might have had four different banks involved or three different credit cards or six different car companies, only one at the, uh, at the USGA. So, um, you know, American Express is our credit card partner. There won't be another one. We, and we're, we're all in with them as, as an example. And I've really enjoyed that because I think as a result, it allows us to be much more integrated with their business and not think about their business as something next week from Thursday to Sunday, but think about their business 52 weeks a year. Prometica is one you mentioned that's brand new that, that, that I did bring when I came. And Prometica is the first ever uh, corporate partner tied to a USGA championship name in 127 years. We've never had a, champ a championship with a corporate partner name tied to it. So in this case, we created the U.S., uh, the U.S. Women's Open promoted, pr presented by Prometica. And with that presenting partner, we took the purse on the U.S. Women's Open from five and a half million last year to 10 million this year on its way to 12 over the next couple of years. We are um, because of that partnership, you're going to see the U.S. Open going to places like Pebble Beach, Oakmont, Marion, Oakland Hills, um, Pinehurst, the rest. You're going to see the women of the game, the best women on the planet play on the on the stages that you've normally associated with the U.S. Uh, Men's Open. So. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It was a big step for us. It was a historical uh, break a little bit, but all designed to do one thing, which is raise the platform 
uh, for women uh, for women in this game. And you are perfect at it and perfect for it because of your experiences and what the USGA mandate is. And we're doing this in and around Brookline, and we just finished the successful uh, event on the on the women's side uh, in North Carolina. Uh, is there the opportunity then to talk a little bit more about the diversity about the USGA? It's not a men's organization. It's far from it. So give me the elevator speech. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you the personal experience. Um, I used to go in as the LPGA commissioner and present to the USGA what they call the executive committee, which is essentially the board of directors of the USGA. And um, from 2010 to 2014 or 15, I would go in every year and make a presentation, state of the art, state of the health of the women's game. Um, and then I, we, we got away from that. And we, I think that became that didn't become part of their annual meeting program. And so when I got asked to come meet with the selection committee, which was a subset of the executive committee, I was pretty sure I knew what it looked like. It, it, um, it looked like me and you, which it was not very attractive, old white country <laughs> club. And um, yeah, I walked right. into, and I, if I was being honest with you, as a result of that stereotype, uh, not very interested in the original premise. And I walked into this room that had, I think, six people, two African-American uh, males, two females, and, and, and two white guys. And I thought, I'm in the wrong room. I mean, I literally thought I was in the wrong room for a minute. We started talking public golf, private golf, some golf experience, very little golf experience, official, uh, official rules officials, and totally unofficiating. It was really an interesting mix. It felt like the game. And I thought to myself, the USGA gets it. They're starting at the top. They're going to start by what you see is what you get. And, um, you know, our board um, looks like uh, this game and what this game is both becoming and, and then had to come. So I'm excited. Got a long way to go uh, in our sport. I'm really excited that partners like Seth and Jay and Molly that are all fully invested in that. We have an industry. We all decided back around um, Ahmaud Aubrey time, uh, you know, George Floyd, that we were all doing things and we were all going to ramp those things up. But each of us individually having some DEI initiatives was interesting. Bringing those initiatives together and having those across the industry was game changing. So we have six major platforms that we're all funding. And quite frankly, manufacturers across the board, TaylorMade, Ping, Callaway, um, all in on, uh, on helping us. Retailers are involved in tours and et cetera. So um, six different platforms that are going to really change the face of this game. And we're doing it as a full industry. Nobody, it's not, it's not owned by the PGA of America or PGA Tour, or the LPGA, USGA. Uh, and uh, it's probably, I've said this many times, probably in my 25, 30 years in the industry, the most exciting thing I've been a part of, because I've never seen us fully collaborate on anything like we're doing on DE&I. Well, and remember, I mean, it was interesting over the last few years, as I got to know you and how you work as commissioner of LPGA. And one of the things that you always talked about is, is uh, not necessarily equal pay, although ultimately, yeah, but to admire and honor the economics of women's golf, put fields together whenever possible. And now your mandate under the USGA is to do exactly that. I assume you were torn a little bit leaving the LPGA after building an amazing culture, but it, Hard decision, not a hard decision. What's the thought there? Well, I mean, the, the truth is I left the LPGA before I had an offer or, or anything significant from USGA or anybody else. I, I, uh, when I first got to the, uh, the LPGA, I used to give this speech a lot that said nobody owns the, the LPGA. And all commissioners are, uh, are, is the current runner in the relay race with the baton. So my job is to run as hard as I can, as fast as I can. And when I feel myself slowing down, slap that baton in another highly caffeinated uh, person's hands that could take us to the next level. And 
the key is to make sure you know when uh, when you're slowing down. I felt myself slowing down probably about 2018 and 19, and I went to the board and said, I think it's time. And you know, like happens in a board meeting, I walked out of there with a, a signed extension, and um, it, 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 I knew it was doing the right thing. I love. I originally signed a four-year deal, and I said that's as long as I was going to stay at the LPGA and stayed there 12 years. So my love of the athletes, my love of the staff, my love of the mission kept me there. Uh, but I realized after doing it for 12 years that um, I, I really believe this, and I still do, that the business was be in better hands with somebody that would come in and look at the current status quo and say, that's all you got? Because when I walked in in 2010, I thought, well, this is so, we could be so much better than this. And by the time 12 years later, you make a bunch of changes, you're pretty proud of everything you built. And it's hard to walk in every morning and go, that's all you got. But I knew somebody new would walk in and say, we're so much better than this. And that, that's what's happening. And I'm excited for that. So I left the, uh, I announced to the LPJ board that I was leaving. Um, and you can relate to this, Rick. I said to my wife, let's go. We have a house in Reynolds, Georgia. Not a very big house, but a small house. I said, let's sell this big house in Florida. The kids are gone. Let's move to Georgia for a year. And at the end of a year, I promise I'll figure out what I'm going to do next. But wouldn't it be great to just spend a year together at the lake? Cell phone coverage is bad there. So I'm a better husband. And um, uh, I think that was on a, on a Tuesday. I announced to the LPJ that I was officially leaving. On Friday, I got a phone call from the chairman of the board at the USGA. And I think by Tuesday of the next week, I was into my first interview. So suffice it to say, we have not been to the lake since I gave my wife that speech about two years yeah. ago. I, I can only imagine. And in a fairly very short period of time. And oh, by the way, COVID in the middle of this too. Uh, right. Stuart Francis, right. the one of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the president, uh, says that you are... Uh, uh, a doer, a visionary, brings ideas to life, the best. Uh, he goes on and on, and other people do the same thing. Uh, what's your biggest, now that you've had an opportunity to uh, assess where you are and what the assets are, what's the biggest challenge that lies ahead for the USGA? Um, I think there's, you know, it's, you know me, it's hard for me to pick one thing. I mean, there's, um, there's three things, and they range from what I could call, call internal problems to external problems. Uh, we're a 127 year old brand, Rick. And every time I sit in a plane and I sit down with these letters on, somebody goes, oh, USGA, I love the game. I live at such and such, I play. And then somewhere in the flight, they look at me and go, what is it you guys do again? Yeah, and right. uh, they know the USGA, they probably could tell you what the letters stand for, but they really don't know the USGA's role in the game. So one of the things I've really set out on a quest for, and that's probably because I come from a marketing background is, it's time to tell people our role in the game, it, just for nothing else. So people, so I've changed these letters on the inside. So on the inside, it stands for Unify, Showcase, Govern, and Advance. We spend about $12 million a year unifying the game. Your GIN handicap app, world handicapping system, course ratings. When you go play, and, and especially in your case, when you and I come to play, the only way you and I can have a competitive game is that I give you a ton of strokes. And how do we figure out how many <laughs> strokes? We pull out our GIN app and you have a handicap. And then we figure out where do you get those strokes on each hole because we've course rated that course all around the world. By the way, you and I could fly to Thailand, which never going to happen. But if we did and went to Thailand and walked on the first tee and played with an 18-year-old girl and a 26-year-old boy, we could have a real game. I mean, try that in baseball or basketball or volleyball. Not, not possible. So we unify the sport through our investments in these unification tools. We showcase the sport, 15 uh, national championships a year, old, young, male, female, team, individual professional, amateur, and now starting in July this year, uh, players with disabilities as well with the U.S. Adaptive Open. Fifteen ways for you to, to, to strive and to have a dream to reach the highest level in the game, no matter where you are in the game, over 50, under 15, male, female, 
uh, team and amateur. So that's showcase. We govern the game. Everybody seems to know that. We're the rule makers together with the RNA. Again, simply to make sure that wherever you play the game, whenever you play the game, we're all playing by the same common set of rules, uh, amateur status, pro status. The last one is the A, Rick, and that's advance the game. If I was being honest and, and, and would critique my own organization, I think the thing that the USGA has, um, has tended to back away from is advancing the game for the next 50 yeah. and 70 years. I think they, um, they tend to do that through writing checks. PGA of America launches a new initiative. We're the largest check writer. If Augusta starts drive, chip, and putt, we'll write the largest check. If PGA Tour starts uh, first tee, we'll write the biggest check. LPGA Girls Golf, that's sort of been our answer. Yes, of course we're supportive. We write big checks. But what you're going to see over the next few years is the USGA launching what I call some BBLs, big, bold leadership initiatives, things that we're going to be into for decades and we're going to be into for tens of millions of dollars that are fundamental to making sure this game is better in 50 years than it is today. And I think that will be the, the difference in the short term. And for me personally, on the inside, that's my that's my top priority. So I've known Mike Awan fairly well for an extended period of time and, and really well for a short period of time. And one of his modus operandi is he gives you three or four shots. Uh, and uh, five minutes later, because you've just finished his filibuster, you forgot those shots. So we're not even going to talk about it. That was very, very well done. And it's consistent. I've been wand yet again. Gaming. Let's change the subject fairly quickly. You didn't even know. Nobody knew a few years ago whether it would even be legal. You know, 38 states later, now everybody's talking about how to maximize gaming. What's your take on the future of the revenue from the game, how you manage it, and how you uh, maximize its awareness and and uh, and likability? So three things when it comes to gaming. Number one, it's here, like it or not. So we can talk about whether or not you're a fan of it or not a fan of it. It, it really doesn't matter. I mean, last year, $150 million was spent on the U.S. Open in terms of wagering. So whether I was involved in that, whether the USGA was in the game, doesn't matter. It's here. Second thing you need to know about it is it fundamentally delivers a different audience, at least to our sport. It's young. It's um, it's interactive. You know, they they follow your sport on their phone and not on their uh, not on their TV or, or on their on their iPad. Um, and because it's that way, they stay with you much longer. So you get this younger audience that stays with you, you know, on a much longer basis. The third thing is in order to be in order to control the wagering on your game, in order to make sure that you can keep it from being a bad thing in your sport, you gotta you got to get in and own the data. You've got to be the best at the data production and the data collection. And in just doing that, you know, I, this is what I said to my board about a year ago, in order to actually make sure that no one's doing bad things on the U.S. Open or the U.S. Women's Open or the U.S. Amateur, we've got to be the data king. To be the data king, you end up result, resulting in a much better uh, stat base for your sport. I know more about my sport and will know more in the next few years because of what gaming requires you to get into. Um, I'll also, because I'll be into that through that activity, I'll be able to tell you on a Monday after the U S open who bet on who and how much money was spent and which things are different from what the expectations were. So I can kind of review and, and pursue and investigate anything that's, that's strange. And the last thing I'd say to you is uh, for every sport, and this is what every sport and every commissioner like I did at the LPJ and I'm dealing with here at the USJ is, um, whether you like it or not, um, and whether you manage it or not, somebody else will manage the betting on your sport. So um, if you really believe in, the, in the, the sanctity of your sport, the ethics of your sport, and making sure that it stays clean, it's your job. It's your responsibility to figure that out for the sport. Otherwise, someone's going to figure it out for your sport. So, yes, there's some benefits to it. There's certainly some downside risks, and you got to manage those. But if you outsource that 
and just let some other gaming company become the the king of gaming on in your sport, uh, I think you'll wake up wishing you didn't follow that path. A couple other philosophical questions fairly quickly. 501 million U.S. rounds, probably more, 16,000 courses, 150 million golfers. That was a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. 35 million avid, six of us, very, very, very avid, notwithstanding your juvenile con- uh, uh, comment about my handicap. So look at, do you, we think- look at you with all these stats. I'm very, very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. And they're all actually fairly accurate. Top <laughs> golf, pop stroke, all of those efforts to grow the game, are they uh, things that the USGA embraces, in, uh, appreciates, uh, aligns with? What's your thought about growing the game from that perspective? Yes, yes, and yes. Appreciates, align with. I forget what your first one was, but um, yes. What, the way I think about golf, Rick, is, and this is probably different than what you've heard from others, there's 37, seven and a half million people that play the game in America. Now, the interesting thing is a third of them only play it on a green grass golf course. A third of them have never walked on a green grass golf course. Top golf, pop stroke, driving ranges, putt putt, and a third of them do both. Um, so, what's really interesting is the demographics between those three. So, what's happening on a golf course is, is kind of what, what you is changing, but is more aligned with what you envision when you envision golf. When you take this, this 12 and a half million that don't walk on a golf course or haven't recently, it's incredibly more female. It's incredibly more people of color. It's super high. Uh, it's, it's pretty affluent. I mean, it would shock people how affluent that group is. And what's happened since COVID is this, this group in the middle, this 12 and a half million that don't play on green grass have migrated. And we're seeing a bigger chunk of that group have both the time, the effort, and the interest to join the game. And as a result, it's changing the face of the game. It's changing the, the attitude and the atmosphere of the game. So um, what's really cool, a lot of people talk about the growth during COVID, and it's been unbelievable. But if you go back farther, 2015, and you jump forward six years to today, the, uh, the industry, if you will, is 24% bigger than it was. And of that growth, it's driven by females, it's driven by juniors, and it's driven by people of color. Who would have believed in 2014 that you just said, you know, in the next six years, we're going to blow this thing out and we're going to blow it out because of juniors, women and people of color. Everybody would have said, you don't get it. Uh, but that's exactly what's happened. You're 57 going on 30. What does Mike Wan do for the next 57 years? <laughs> uh, it's funny you say that. So I, I took this when I took this job, I said to the board, I'm 57. I got one more. I got one more swing at the plate. Right. I don't think I'm going to be in the lineup card uh, uh, next year. So um, I think this is kind of a five or six year run for me. I'm not going to be doing this when I'm 67. Um, you know, caffeine will have certainly killed me by then. And um, and as a result, I actually like it better. You know, when you're 37, you talk um, you talk about long term and you know there is such a thing. When you're 57, I don't like it when people come in my office and tell me about where we're going to get by 2045. 2045 isn't on my radar. Uh, 2025 is on my radar. So uh, I've always been sort of, as you know, highly caffeinated. And and I always think long term goals are three years, not not 10 I just think 10-year plans anymore are humorous. Write them in pencil because yeah. the world changes. But I'm really excited because we have both the wherewithal at the USGA. We have the momentum in the golf game. And I'm hyper enough to uh, say, what are we going to do in the next three or four years, not in the next 10 or 15 years, that I really believe that we're going to make fundamental uh, We're going to make fundamental and lasting change because there's, no, um, there's no real out-of-bound stake stopping us. I've said this many times to my own team. The only thing going to keep us from achieving our goals is us. We don't, we don't, we don't, 
We're not hurting for money. We're not hurting for attention. We're not hurting for TV time. And we're not hurting for momentum in the marketplace. All things you could have used as an excuse. I don't have that excuse. Mike Wine, as you see, gives us a lot of perspective as we move forward. We will certainly hear more from him in the future. Now, the Sports Tech Minute. Sports betting marketplace Wager Wire raises $3 million, led by Marlins co-owner Roger Ehrenberg. The online marketplace that lets users buy and sell previously placed sports bets raised an extra $3 million in seed funding, led by Roger Ehrenberg. Wager Wire lets bettors create wagers and players with parlays, gives them opportunities to use other events and other assets, securing the original creator a profit, even if the bet's outcome proves unsuccessful. Other wager wire investors, Cardinal Sports Capital, Eberg Capital Venture Funds, and others. People want to talk about more diversity, and here it is. How about sports gambling? We always talk about each individual state. Let's get a bigger perspective now about the overall industry. University of Maryland um, talks about a study and a poll that finds that states across the country legalizing sports betting and online sports books, flooding sports television with celebrity-backed advertising, Americans are growing more accepting of the practice of gaming in general. 66% now approve of making bets on professional sporting events legal, up from 55% who said the same in 2017 before the Supreme Court decision, and 40 one percent in 1993. Support for betting and legalizing on college sports a bit lower. 49% approve. 50% disapprove. Sports betting will always be one of the most polarizing issues, but one thing remains clear. The field absolutely continues to grow. Finally, let's end with what we always do, the Good Sports Five. Well, the Gates Foundation, women's tennis, partnering on health issues worldwide. Melinda Gates has talked about uh, what to do with general health care and using the WTA as part of that deal. Simone Biles and Megan Rapino changed their sports and their country for the better, and as a testament to their greatness, the Medal of Honor given out by, by the president in the last week, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. A big honor for them. We also focus on a acquittal. Sepp Blatter and Michelle Platini quitted on charges of defrauding FIFA by a Swiss criminal court last week. He was, they were, talking about 20,000 frisks of the Swiss francs as compensation for being morally wronged, the court said, and clearly siding with them. Finally, Lamar Jackson said the I need dollars image on his social media pages isn't a message to the Ravens, but the Ravens, now that the season is closer, need to figure out what they want to do with their superstar, not only from a perspective of the business, but philanthropic issues as well. That's our show for today. We'd like to thank the CEO of the USGA, Mike Wan. would like to thank uh, Nick Nielsen for putting the show together with others as we distribute it. We'd like to thank you all for watching and listening. And join us next week when we continue to be across the pond with international news 
focusing on the $1.3 trillion business of sports. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. See you next time. <music>